Well, easy enough. That's been on mine for quite a while, but before we get started again, I just want to offer flowers to all the moms here. So if you're a mom, please raise your hand for just a second. Raise your hand. Okay, let's give a hand to all the moms in here. We want to thank you for what you've done in our lives. Thanks so much. Uh, my sweet wife, thank you. I love you. I appreciate you. Um, thanks for uh, carrying our family and our children. Just all you do. Great stuff. Thank you. Let's keep going. I'm going to throw my hand up every time we do a slide. So um, as we look through, I just want to talk about some examples that we can find in life. And something that really got my attention was God really created the world to be enjoyed and filled by all creation. He fellowshiped with Adam and Eve every single day. In fact, it says that he walked in the cool of the day with Adam and Eve and fellowshiped. Isn't that a great feeling when you have somebody you can talk to and share with? And he delighted most in their love for him and their dependence upon him. Isn't that great? Those of you that are moms and dads, it's a great feeling when your child comes up to you and says, thank you. It's a nice feeling when you come home and they put their arms around you and say, I missed you. It's a great feeling because you've done something. And I believe that God, our Father, so appreciates the fact when we take time to acknowledge that he's enough. We don't have to say the words. Sometimes it's just by action. It's by how we're acting. However, Satan twists the words and commands of God, if you remember. And in so doing, he deceived Adam and Eve into believing what God had provided just wasn't enough. And you remember that time. You remember that place. Let's go ahead and move forward, please. What I'll put before you is this. As we look through key figures in God's Word today, we can see how the curse of sin is alive and well, and it's wreaking havoc in the lives of God's people. However, there are times the outcome of this great deception served as an agent of change for the unsuspecting. If you guys ever been in that place, you didn't expect God to move in your life. You weren't looking for him to move in your life, and he did. I know my testimony, you know, part of it, I wasn't looking for God. God got hold of me, changed my life. I was unsuspecting. I didn't grow up in church. Uh, my mom and dad were good people. We were Christers, I guess. We would go Easter, we would go Christmas. Um, we would go whenever there was a special event. Uh, but as you get older, you begin to realize that you're really not self-sufficient. And you realize that uh, there's vulnerability in your life, that you're, you're very finite. And there's something inside of you that cries out that's infinite. And that's where you're seeking the Lord. But anyway... This great deception served as an agent of change for the unsuspecting, leading them to turn from their act of rebellion against God and acknowledge he's enough. And I'm going to tell you, folks, I've got it written, but there is no better student of human nature than Satan. Ponder that for a moment. We are all like vapor where Satan has the ability to learn perpetually. His goal is to beat all humanity in submission Grab the praise wherever through force or ignorant bliss, and he does it all as the father of lies. He's the master of bait and switch. You look at what's happening in the world today. God has been taken out of the schools. God's been taken out of government. God is trying to be cherry-picked out of your heart. And if you look around, you have a, a goal for one world government, one world religion, one world economy and worship the world itself. All of this and the enterprise behind it is Satan, to deceive all the nations into believing that he's got a better plan. He creates the chaos, and then he solves for the chaos. He wants to set himself up on the throne of God in Israel, and he wants all of us to bow down, whether by willful submission or ignorance, or we're going to be forced to and coerced to. And we're going to come to a time and a place where we're going to have to answer that question for ourselves and for our faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Is he enough? And I would hope that you guys can nod and say that now is he enough. There's times in my life I can tell you he's not been. Now, when I first came to uh, Life Point Church, um, I remember Pam Cannon had talked to my wife, Rebecca, and said, yeah, we're located here. So I got the address, was pretty excited about it. And the first thing I did was pop out my phone. You guys have done this. You type in the address in Google, and up pops something just like this. Anybody done that? Two people? Okay, so two people know what I'm talking about, right? Everybody in here has done that. We use Google quite often. We, we, we're going to find where this is, where that is. And what I noticed, a couple things came to my attention 
uh, when I began using this, um, and I found it the hard way on a, on a business trip to Florida. I typed in the address, address I needed to go, but I couldn't see the rest of the address, and I hit enter. And I get in my car, and as I'm looking at the GPS, I'm, I'm going straight on. It's like, man, this is taking me exactly where I need to go. Well, 47 minutes later, I realized that it did not take me to Leesburg, Florida. It took me to Ocala with the same address. The difference was it was not my hotel. It was a field of cows. <laughs> Anybody been there and done that? But the, but the uniqueness is on that phone, if you look, you can, you can see it off to the right up there on the screen. There's a little button you can click, and that's True North. Anybody ever use that application? Because when you're driving south, right, you can push the button, and everything reverses, and you realize, I'm driving away. I'm going the wrong direction. I didn't know that, but I do know a lot about Ocala, Florida now. <laughs> But what about that in life? It's not much different. What about recenter? Have you ever touched your screen a little bit and moved things around and you realize, man, I'm, I'm, I'm supposed to be in Florida and I'm over here in Alabama. How did that happen? There's water and I didn't know how to handle that. So I pull off the side of the road and I retype everything and I don't get signal. I'm frustrated and I realize, oh, there's another button there. And that little button says recenter. And my guess is today after hearing this message and while hearing this message, there are those of you here self-included, we need to stop and take that time to push that button in our life and recenter. We need to get perspective. Because without perspective, it's easy to get disoriented. And without discernment, it's easy to be misled. And we live in a time and a day, and we need to have a heightened awareness of what the enemy's trying to do. You see, Satan doesn't deal in simplicity. He deals in subtlety. God is crystal clear in his word, who he is, who we are, and where we're going. Satan deals in subtlety. He's okay you never touching that true north button to find out where the true north is. He's okay you never hitting recenter and a lot of you think that you can't. Or maybe a lot of you think that, hey, the lifestyle I've been involved with, the things I'm going through can never be recentered. Well, that's a lie from the pit of hell. And I'm here to tell you, based on the Word of God, not my Word, based on the Word of God, that can all be reset. You can find a true north, and you can recenter, and you can reset. So similarly, without the Word of God, we can easily be disoriented and misled by Satan. And I said before, he knows human nature and is wickedly deceitful. Fortunately, God has given us all mercy to find true north and grace to recenter. Let's move forward. Now, what I wanted to do is I wanted to park through the Bible a couple things using this whole idea is easy enough, and then also using this little bit of technology and uh, what we would have as a compass. And I'm going to give you an example of a few people that were in the north. They were doing just fine, and they were deceived. They did not turn. They, they were warned, and they went south pretty quickly. And then I want to talk about a few people we may be able to also associate with it. They were just south. They didn't know where things were, where we were going. God showed up in a miraculous way and redirected them north to the true north, helped recenter their lives. And then the last person I'm going to talk about is going to be about the east to westers. Those people just kind of float through life and eh, passive indifference doesn't really matter. Things are as they are, and I'll feel bad for things when I need to feel bad for things, and then I'm going to be okay when things are going just great. And I think what we're going to find is every single one of us can identify with the north to south. Every single one of us can identify south to north, and each of us can identify in our lives where we live east to west. Pretty straightforward. But for the north to south, these are examples of people in the Bible that were disoriented and deceived, and to them, God wasn't enough. Well, let's start with the first one. Anybody hear of those two folks called Adam and Eve? Anybody? Same, same two people. All right, so the same two people that know GPS. Right, we all know. We all know the story of Adam and Eve. We know that God had given them the perfect environment. He walked with them every single day in the cool of the eve. He fellowshiped with them. They saw God Almighty face to face. Sin was not even in the equation. His sufficiency was there. But then came along the serpent, beast of the field, we're told. Four legs, much like an ox, Okay. And the serpent's lie was on his tongue, that, that God's provision was just not enough. And through that, Adam and Eve believed that. They believed, hey, we can be more. We could become more. 
And so they took the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, thinking somehow this was going to help them in their, their uh, own personal ambitions. And as a result, the blinders came off, and they realized exactly what had happened, that they had actually defied God. They basically said, God, you're not enough. And we know the rest of the story, exit stage left. They're out of the Garden of Eden. And as a result of that, we are where we are today. Those are our parents. Those are, we're descendants. And we're born inherently into sin. And the only thing that can reroute, recenter, and give us true north is repentance. But what about this other guy named Pharaoh? I know that many of you guys have read through the uh, story of Pharaoh and the children of Israel, how the children of Israel made their way down because of a drought, how Joseph had actually been sold into slavery and by God's design had prepared an opportunity for all of his brothers and his family to be saved through the drought. But then a new Pharaoh arises, and that new Pharaoh doesn't recognize anybody. What that Pharaoh did not understand was there was a measure of prosperity because of the children of Israel. You take out a two le- couple letters, prosperity becomes property. Absolutely changed the prosperity that, Israel, that the Hebrew people gave to him and to his country. And he put them in bondage. He became fearful and they became property. And if you remember, um, Pharaoh was a man of idolatry, murderous threats and actions. He defied the Lord God Almighty. God raised up Moses, and Moses came in and shared with him exactly what needed to do so that his people, God's people, could leave, go out into the wilderness and worship him. And Pharaoh always said, no, I will, but here's a caveat. I will, but here's something else. You can, but leave your wife and children Next time, can but leave your cattle. And finally, God judged Pharaoh. And the last plague was the hardest. The firstborn of all creatures were were killed unless they had the blood of a lamb passed uh, over top of their doors so that the Spirit of God, that the angel of the Lord, would pass over them. So we see that Pharaoh was another person that was north to south. His life was completely changed and ruined because God wasn't enough. He didn't trust. We also look at Achan. If you remember Achan out of Joshua seven, this was one of the first. Um, this is one of the first conquests that, that uh, uh, Joshua had into the new land. And Jericho, if you remember, was a rather large city. It says that seven chariots could be side by side and run across the the, the top of the uh, fortress. And uh, Joshua was told to conquer. It didn't look like that was going to happen. But because of the faithfulness, because God was enough, and because the Israelites trusted everything that God had said and how to do and what to do in order to uh, overcome Jericho, Jericho fell. And one of the commands that God gave his people was that as you go in, you're not to touch any of, the, any, any of the livestock and cattle, any of those things. You can take the gold and silver and put it in the treasury, but everything else must be destroyed and left as is. But there was one man, Achan. And Achan decided to take for himself, God's word wasn't enough, not enough, decided to take for himself something. And he hid it in the tent. And as a result of that, the nation of Israel was routed in the next battle. And they begin to realize something's wrong. And finally, as they went before the Lord, the Lord shared with Moses, you, uh, excuse me, he shared with the priest, you need to go through and you need to go, fa- you need to go family by family and then by tribe and then all the way down and recognize that, that Achan had actually sinned against God. And as a result of that, not only Achan, but his family, all of Israel, The nation was embarrassed because of what Achan had done, because God was just not enough. Now let's look at King Saul. And if you remember, King Saul was picked out because um, the people wanted a king. It wasn't because God wanted a king. God was perfectly fine in that leadership role. But the people wanted a king. Because God was just not enough. They began to look around at everybody else and said, why can't we have a king like everyone else? And so God said, okay. But if you choose to do this, this is what's going to happen. 
going to take your sons and your daughters and put them to work. He's going to take your fields. He's going to take your animals, your livestock. He's going to take your income. And he's going to go to war. And he's going to go to battle. And they said, so be it. Because you're not enough. God, you're just not enough. And so as a result of that, Saul was anointed king. And uh, it wasn't long until they realized there was no spiritual depth to his life. You know, Saul looked the part, and he was esteemed by his country. But it didn't take long for him to realize that God wasn't enough. And he began to do things the way he wanted to do things. And Saul actually became one of the most self-centered individuals in history, if you read. Saul simply did what he wanted. Now, um, do you know anybody that's self-centered? You do? My, my daughter's going, yeah, looking right at me. Well, <laughs> you know, I used to joke with people that uh, I wrote a book years ago called The Epitome of Humility. It's an autobiography. It's about me and how humble I am. And uh, I have 10 pictures of me in that book, and seven of which I'm kneeling in fervent prayer, and two of them, the Pope is kissing my ring. And uh, I will have copies at the door for you later. But the epitome of humility, sometimes we don't recognize in ourselves just how arrogant we are, but arrogance lies in stark contrast to God being enough. If you begin to meet people that's all about the self, and I'm going to do what I want to do, really shaking their fist at God. It makes me a little nervous, makes me want to take a step back because I'm looking at the clouds and going, okay, all right, uh, it's coming. And the reason it's coming is because God loves you. Period in story. He loves you. But King Saul had a book too, Epitome of Humility. And as a result of the way he lived his life, he brought dishonor upon his nation. And instead of being a blessing to those neighboring nations, he denied them opportunity to see the power of God displayed through him simply because God wasn't enough. What about King David? Now, King David's a bit of a different story. And he's kind of a north to south story in some ways too, isn't he? He was very unsuspecting. He was out in the field doing his work. He was killing bears, killing lions, you know, the normal things shepherds do. And God decides that uh, Saul is no longer going to be king. So he sends a prophet out, said, go to the house of Jesse. You're going to do a walk around. You're going to do a survey. And as uh, he's walking around and Samuel's doing the survey, he sees all these strong, good-looking, handsome men, got the jawline, got the big muscles, got the spears, got, you know, they're it. They're fit to be a king. And what did God say? He said, I've rejected them. And why did God reject them? It's not because of what they look like. It's because of where their heart was. He said, do you have any more sons? He's like, well, yeah, I got a scrawny little guy out in the back. Let me go get him. Brings him in, and this David said he was ruddy and handsome. Probably was not much to look at, still growing. He may have a little acne, I don't know. But he was brought in, and God said, this is who I want. This is who I want. He was anointed. He was anointed king. And David was kind of unique. I like his heart. And that's why God loved him so much, because he had heart after God. And so David goes through life as a shepherd boy. He was chosen amongst all of his brothers by Nathan. And he started out so well serving King Saul and even at the risk of his own life. Because it didn't take long that Saul recognized David's potential. And if you remember, David not only was somebody who was brought in to uh, play the play musical instrument to just kind of tone down uh, King Saul, but he was also somebody who was brought in and had military strength and prowess and was an excellent leader, and people followed him. And God kept giving David success after success after success. And even in that success, we see that there was attempts made upon his life King Saul was extremely jealous. He was jealous because so many people uh, would begin to sing praises to King Saul, and then the next verse was not the best one because it was that Saul has killed his thousands, David his tens of thousands. And we know that that's where King Saul got very upset about life and began to try to kill him. But David was still faithful. So David started out extremely well. But I'm going to read to you, if you guys want to turn, 
to 2 Samuel. And the story begins to churn. And if you remember, he became king. He had several wives, concubines. But he decided to stay home when his army went to war. King David just didn't have enough. And if you remember, he ended up taking the wife of Uriah the Hittite. And guys, I'll share with you, um, God actually called out David in this. He didn't call out Bathsheba. I think he took Bathsheba by force. And remember that because we're going to see that in his lineage. And he forced himself upon Bathsheba. Then he tried to hide his sin by killing Uriah through an act of cowardice. Then facing the stark reckoning from Nathan the prophet. And let's look at what happens here. 2 Samuel 12, 1 through 7. Nathan replied to David. Oh, let me back up here. Chapter 12, verse 1, 2 Samuel. So the Lord sent Nathan to David when he arrived and said to him, There were two men in a certain city, one rich and the other poor. The rich man had a large number of sheep and cattle, but the poor man had nothing except one small ewe lamb that he had bought. It lived and grew up with him and his children. It shared his meager food and drank from his cup. It slept in his arms, and it was like a daughter to him. Now a traveler came to the rich man, but the rich man could not bring himself to take one of his own sheep or cattle to prepare for the traveler who had come to him. Instead, he took the poor man's lamb and prepared it for his guest. David was infuriated with the man and said to Nathan, as surely as the Lord lives, the man who did this deserves to die. Because he has done this thing and shown no pity, he must pay four lambs for that lamb. And Nathan replied to David, you are the man. And this is what the Lord God of Israel says. I anointed you king over Israel and I delivered you from the hand of Saul. I gave your master's house to you and your master's wives into your arms. And I gave you the house of Israel and Judah. And if that wasn't enough, I would have given you even more. Let me say that again. Even if that wasn't enough, I would have given you even more. Why then have you despised the command of the Lord by doing what I consider evil? You struck down Uriah the Hittite with a sword and took his wife as your own. You murdered him with the Ammonite sword. Now, therefore, the sword will never leave your house because you despised me and took the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your own wife. And we see as a result of this that he lost a lot. But I want to make one point. You notice that there was one character in the story that Nathan gave that was not necessarily in the actual acts of David. It was the traveler by night. Did you notice that? I believe that that was an enticement. I believe that was demonic. I believe that David probably got himself in a situation uh, that he didn't need to be in. And as a result, and I believe it was lust. And I believe that traveler of night was a dece deceiving spirit from Satan himself, causing David to stay home where he was, causing David to act upon the impulse, and causing so much pain in his life, the life of Bathsheba, the life of his children. But as a result of this sin, he lost that child with Bathsheba. We also see that there was rape, Amnon to Tamar. We also see that Absalom murdered Amnon. We also see that Absalom becomes treasonous to take over the throne. We also see David becomes cowardice, and he escapes from Jerusalem out of fear of his own son Absalom. We also see David's children rebel in all manner of godless actions and setting into motion the path by which the United Kingdom is now going to be divided and ultimately conquered, all because God wasn't enough. Now, if you will, turn to Acts chapter 5. We're going to move forward. 
And we're going to talk about Ananias and Sapphira for just a moment. Now, you remember the story of Ananias and Sapphira, and we read that story, and it seems like, wow, man, that's, that's, off, that's heavy. Ananias and Sapphira, if you remember, they, they sold a lot, and they took a portion of that money back, and then they put the rest of it before uh, the early church, before uh, Peter. But what you don't read is maybe just before then. There was a man named Joseph, also called Barnabas. And during that time, the early church made sure that no one was in need. And Joseph decided he was going to go ahead and take a piece of land that he had. He was going to sell it, and he was going to take all the proceeds from that, and he was going to give back to the church so they could take the proceeds and distribute it amongst all the people within that congregation. That is an act of faith that God is enough. But there were two people in this congregation, Ananias and Sapphira. And Ananias and Sapphira saw what happened, and I believe that they tried to mimic what was otherwise God-centered and God is enough-ism, if you want to term term that, and they decided to take upon themselves, and out of their own human existence, they tried to mimic what Joseph called Barnabas had done. But when it came time to take the proceeds of off of that land that they had, they took the money, they placed it, but they held some back. And we see what happens. We see that each of them, Ananias and Sapphira, walk in respectively separately. And they have been called out for the lie that they're in. And I stop for a second because I think that we need to ask ourselves, even within our own congregation, um, probably point this out and then ask of ourselves. Ananias and Sapphira probably were not... um, not misers, they were probably imposters. I think it's a fair shake. But when God calls us to do something, uh, he does so even if it's tough to do because he wants us to recognize he's enough. Whatever we think we're giving away is going to be a small thing. God is going to backfill all of that and more. You can see that that tends to be the way God works. I want to talk now for a second, if we're going to advance the slide, south to north. Before I do that, just by nod, can can each of us see somehow we've had that north to south experience? I think so. I want to talk a little bit about the south to north experience now. And this is examples of people God turned. Uh, To them, God was enough, or they recognized soon that he would be enough. If we would, I want to go ahead and turn to chapter uh, 4 of Daniel. And I'm going to read this. It's a little lengthy. But I think it's important that we, we look at this. Chapter 4, verse 1. This is King Nebuchadnezzar. To those of every people, nation, and language who live in all the earth, may your prosperity increase. I am pleased to tell you about the miracles and wonders the Most High God has done for me. How great are His miracles and how mighty His wonders. His kingdom is an eternal kingdom, and His dominion is from generation to generation. I, Nebuchadnezzar, was at ease in my house and flourishing in my palace. I had a dream and it frightened me. While in my bed, the images and visions in my mind alarmed me. So I issued a decree to bring all the wise men of Babylon to me in order that they might make the dream's interpretation known to me. When the diviner priests, mediums, Chaldeans, and astrologers came in, I told them the dream, but they could not make the interpretation known to me. Finally, Daniel named Belshazzar, after the name of my God, and the spirit of the holy gods in him, came before me, and I told him the dream. Belshazzar, head of the diviners, because I know that you have a spirit of the holy gods and that no mystery puzzles you, explained to me the visions of my dream that I saw in its interpretation. In the visions of my mind as I was lying in bed, I saw this. There was a tree in the middle of the earth, and its height was great. The tree grew large and strong. It, its top reached to the sky, and it was visible to the ends of the earth. It, its leaves were beautiful. Its fruit was abundant, and on it was food for all. Wild animals found shelter under it. The birds of the air lived in its branches, and every creature was fed from it. 
as I was lying in my bed, I also saw in one in the visions of my mind an observer or a watcher, maybe in your book, a holy one coming down from heaven. He called out loudly, cut down the tree and chop off its branches, strip off its leaves and scatter its fruit. Let the animals flee from under it and the birds from its branches, but leave the stump with its root in the ground and with it put a band of iron and bronze around it in the tender grass of the field. Let him be drenched with dew from the sky and share the plants of the earth with the animals. Let his mind be changed from that of a man and let him be given the mind of an animal for seven periods of time. This word is by decree of the observers. The matter is a command from the holy ones. This is so the living will know that the mighty high, the most high is ruler of the kingdom of men. He gives it to anyone he wants and sets over it the lowliest of men. This is the dream that I, King Nebuchadnezzar, had. Now about Shazar, tell me the interpretation because none of the wise men of my kingdom can make the interpretation known to me, but you can because you have the spirit of the holy gods. Then Daniel, whose name is Belshazzar, was stunned for a moment, and his thoughts alarmed. The king said, Belshazzar, don't let the dream or the interpretation alarm you. And Belshazzar answered, My lord, may the dream apply to those who hate you and its interpretation to your enemies. The tree you saw, which grew large and strong, whose top reached to the sky and was visible to all the earth, whose leaves were beautiful and its fruit abundant, and on it was food for all. Under it, the wild animals lived, and in it, the branches, the trees, the birds of the air lived. The tree is you, king, for you have become great and strong. Your greatness has become, um, excuse me, your greatness has grown and even reaches to the sky, and your dominion to the ends of the earth. The king saw an observer, holy one, coming down from the heaven and saying, cut down the tree and destroy it. Let me skip on to verse 28. And I want to stop for a second. So from the time of this dream, you can see what's happening to King Nebuchadnezzar. And King Nebuchadnezzar has the opportunity to hear all that's going to happen to him if he does not repent, if he does not accept that God is enough and God is the one who's provided all these things. And all these things have been provided to Nebuchadnezzar because I believe Nebuchadnezzar was holding watch over the Hebrew people, over the Jewish people. And he wanted Nebuchadnezzar to prosper because of who he had um, dominion over. But it took 12 months. It took 12 months for Nebuchadnezzar to even, and he made no decision, no changes, no choice. There was no change in his lifestyle. And at the end of that 12 months, Nebuchadnezzar stood up over all that he had, and he looked out, and he said, look what my hand has done. And at that moment, all the things that were prophesied to happen came to happen. And he instantly had the mind of an animal and was gone. And in fact, if you look back in Babylonian text, there is a gap in history. And it says that he did return to the throne, but he was gone. So we know that this did happen. Here's a man who had everything he could possibly need as a blessing because he uh, was blessed, I believe, by God. And had an opportunity to turn from uh, self-centeredness and turn to God and allow God to use him in some mighty ways, and he did not acknowledge that. One thing that I do like is this. As I was reading through, I compared to what happened at Nineveh. And if you remember, unlike the king of Nineveh who repented when warned by Jonah, Nebuchadnezzar did not. He did not heed Daniel's warning. But the most important event in this passage is Nebuchadnezzar's conversion that occurred when the Lord sovereignly returned the king's understanding to him. And if you remember, when he looked up, he finally acknowledged who God was and who he was under God's divine authority. New Testament, Simon Peter, another person. How many Simon Peters do we have out there? You got that personality that's just ready to jump out of the boat and just walk on the water and move forward? Uh, how many times did he say something to Jesus and Jesus had to like calm him down and say, slow down, buddy? And any of those out there? All right, got, I'm sure there are. I'm sure there are. But Peter, Simon Peter was known to be rogue. He kind of do his own thing. And if you remember, when he came, in, when he came into um, 
contact with Jesus. Um, Jesus said, hey, uh, push off, throw your nets over to the side. Peter's like, come on. He said, I've been out there all night. There's, there's, there's no fish. He said, trust me. Okay, Lord, as you command, I'll do it. So he pushes out. He throws the net over the side, and all these fish begin, begin uh, filling the nets, actually jumping in the nets like they wanted to be there, and they had to get another boat to come over. And he recognized at that point that this was a miracle, and he recognized you've never been enough. And he said, God, depart from me, for I'm undone. And we see that this is unique because here's a man who was south and then was redirected, recentered north. Mary Magdalene. Anybody do any research on Mary of Magdala? I don't know how many of you watched some of the series, or um, I think it's called The Chosen. Has anybody seen any of those? A few of those? Um, um, I'll tell you, that was one of the most powerful um, uh, scenes that I have ever seen in my life. I thought it was so well represented that here is a woman that is possessed and empty and hollow, and the Lord simply called her name. He simply said, Mary, called her by her name, Mary. And she realized exactly who was calling her. What a great story of south to north. And we see throughout the New Testament that this is a woman's name who's never going to be removed from the Word of God. That's pretty amazing. We also see the Apostle Paul. The Apostle Paul's another individual who makes the move south to north. If you remember, the Apostle Paul uh, had so much to boast about, so much to boast about, but he was self-righteous. He thought that everything that God loved about him was everything that he was doing by his own strength. He declared that he was a Benjamite, declared that according to the he was a Pharisee of the strictest sect. Uh, he also declared that... Um, uh, as far as the law goes, it was flawless, meaning he obeyed everything there was in the law. He was given the um, responsibility of, of hurting up Christians like us and uh, either imprisoning them or putting them to death. And the way that works is, as you know, Rome would allow, whenever they conquered a country, they would take on that other religion, just bring them on in, and say, well, you do your own thing as long as you pay to Caesar what's ours. And that's exactly what happened. But Paul, as we know, was on his road to Damascus. He was going to round up some more folks. And uh, on his way, Jesus appeared to him. The risen Savior appeared to him. And his life changed. His life changed dramatically as a result of that. So each person here was confronted by God, their sins exposed, and they saw that he was enough. The last little bit I have is the east to west. If you could flip over to the next slide, please. And this is going to be examples. I think of people called repentance, but they never accepted that uh, he was enough. And um, I think several years back, you guys did a pretty good study in King, about King Ahab. And King Ahab is somebody who, um, was an, he's an enigma to me. Uh, his kingdom um, was basically his to lose. King Ahab basically married into uh, heathenism by taking Jezebel as his wife. And Jezebel was a pagan princess. If you go back and look at the history, she's a pagan princess. And she deceived him into building altars to Baal up in the high places. And that's exactly what they did. Well, the prophet Elijah prophesied King Ahab would die at the hands of the Assyrians so Ahab decides he's going to go repent, and he does. And God spares Ahab not once but twice from the Assyrians. If you've done any research on the Assyrians and the way that they managed um, their, con their conquest, it was pretty vile. And I believe that Ahab was rightfully fearful. But God, even despite all Ahab and Jezebel had done, God was going to spare Ahab. And you would think that this would lead to example and change in his life. But it did not. He continued on. He was spared certain judgment because he repented. But then we see shortly thereafter that Ahab is going to go and he wants to build some vineyards, plant some vineyards. And he goes on to somebody's house, and the gentleman's name is Naboth. And Naboth is asked to sell the land, maybe even trade off. Naboth has no respect for the king. And he declines. He says, not going to do it. And so King Ahab doesn't get his way, and he goes home. 
And the Bible says that he goes up to his room and he lays on his bed and he curls up in fetal position. And um, you ever been there, didn't get what you want, took your ball, went home? And uh, Jezebel comes in and Jezebel uh, talks to him and says, what happened? Explains to him what happened, that he wants that field and he's upset that he didn't get it. So Jezebel takes care of things and has Naboth killed. We see this peak and trough in King Ahab's life, this east to west movement. No real movement, no real change, no true repentance in the life of Ahab. And I think that we can see that God has been so good to us and he's enough. And there's times that we just do not make the change. I do want to share just a personal piece for me. Um, I, as I told you before, I didn't grow up in church. Um, and I'm okay with that because I believe now uh, being part of a fellowship and raising my children to be here is an important thing. And I'm so thankful for that. But uh, when I went to college, I went to Appalachian State, and it was uh, September, probably uh, September 91. Um, I gave my life to Christ. Um, I had a fantastic, um, fantastic just change and transformation. And I realized that uh, I was all about me, and I was creating waves in my life, and, and God saved me. He changed my life. And uh, not too long after that, uh, I was playing basketball, and uh, it was a Thursday night, night before chemistry test the next morning, about 11.30 at night. You can do that when you're younger. And I was uh, taking a little jump shot just inside the three-point line, and when I came down, I landed on my ankle. It completely broke. Completely broke, uh, stayed out of joint, had to uh, take an ambulance ride to get it fixed. And I remember um, just thinking, God, that could have been a lot worse. Could have been a lot worse. And I couldn't walk for months, and um, there was something rather inspiring that said, you need to go see uh, this track coach. His name was Al Fairsheeton. I'd never met the man before, and you can look at my body. I'm not built like a runner. I know you think I am, but I'm not. So I go see Al Fairsheeton, and I sit down and talk to him, but please understand the way I walked in. I walked in with a cane and a boot on. I had boots on, so I wouldn't turn my ankle, and I had a cane, and I said, um... I want to be on your track team. And he looked at me and says, what you got? <laughs> you know? I said, well, I don't have much. I, can't, I can barely walk. And he said, well, what can you do? I said, well, I can throw. I can throw. And he said, all right, we'll see what we can do. Let's heal you up. Which is your plant foot? I said, well, I broke my right one. He said, your left foot, your plant foot, you should be okay. So he took me on the track team my senior year and, uh, and on into graduate school. And I began to throw something called a javelin. Anybody familiar with the javelin? Yep. Anybody ever been a javelin catcher? Nope. God, I hope not. So, um, so I decide I'm going to uh, be on the track team, and I can't walk real well, can't run real well. Uh, felt like I was actually a pretty good athlete um, up until that time of the injury. And I'd just gotten saved. I started going to church with this guy, and, man, my life was changing. It was hitting on all cylinders. You just ever feel like things are just going great. The sun's like on you, rain on everybody else. Everything's great. Everything's good. <laughs> And um, we have this drill when you were throwing javelin. You've got to get warmed up or your arm will fall off. Okay, So you really got to get warmed up, and you take this stick, and you just it's called sticking. Well, at Appalachian State, pre all the construction and growth, um, where I practiced was up on a field up above the football field. So it's spring ball. Football players are out running around. Uh, track team's running around. Um, cheerleaders are out running around. Uh, the band, I think, was you know, getting ready to practice. And I'm up here on this field by myself, still early spring, so the sun's kind of going down back behind me. It's just put this beautiful cast all over, all over um, Boone. And I remember being up there, me and Jesus, we're good. All is good, and I've got this stick, and I'm just throwing it, and all's great. And I've got it, I'm, I'm decided I'm going to take a little breather before I start throwing it hard. And I put the, just kind of leaning over, just hanging out with the uh, javelin on my shoulders, and as I looked down at the field house, there was a young man that walked out. And uh, I remember seeing this young man and the lifestyle he was a part of. And I remember looking at him and just thinking, God, I mean, who in the world do anything for him? You ever been judgmental like that? Be honest. Yeah. And I remember at that moment 
that the sun was behind me. My arms were up over top the javelin. And there was a shadow that was cast right to his feet. You don't forget stuff like that. And that small, still voice said, I care about him. I'm enough. And what I forgot was, I used to be that guy. We all used to be that guy. Our call is to live in the shadow of the cross. Our call is to recognize that Jesus is enough. Our call is to get over ourselves. Our call is to take that book called The Epitome of Humility and burn it. You with me? That's what we're called to do, and that's what we're called to be. But I'm going to close and read some scripture to you. And after each one of these things, I'm going to ask you to say, because he's enough. Fair enough? If you'll flip through, I'm going to read, and I want you to say, he's enough. But he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses so that the power of Christ may rest upon me because he's enough. And my God will supply every need of yours according to his riches and glory in Christ Jesus because and God is able to make all grace abound to you. So that having all sufficiency in all things and at all times, you may abound in every good work because. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. For he did not send his son into the world to condemn it, but that through him it might be saved because. His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence because. But God showed his love for us that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us because. Because he's enough. He's enough. So here's the challenge. Is he? I think so. There are some here today I'm included. We understand what it means to live in the north and travel south, and it's a hard fall because we're making bad decisions in our life and because we we think it's us and we can do it all. There's other times where we can really identify that south to north that we're just unsuspecting. And if you remember the story of Hannah, I only want to bring this up because I want to end on it, and it is Mother's Day. If you remember the story of Hannah... Hannah was perpetually shamed because she did not have child. The Bible says that God closed her womb. It was planned, wasn't it? We also see that her own husband even asked the question, am I not, a, am I not better than 10 sons? <laughs> he wrote a book too, didn't he? Yeah. And then he, she also had, um, I guess you'd call a sister wife. You know, uh, every year they would go up to make a sacrifice, and uh, she always created problems for Hannah. And one day it was just enough for Hannah. And Hannah walked in to the temple, and she bowed down, and she bore her heart before God. You ever have any of those prayers? When's the last time you had a prayer like that? She couldn't even speak. Her lips were moving, but she couldn't even speak. And Eli, to add insult to injury, goes up and goes, you need to lay off your drinking. Are you drunk? Thanks, Eli. So I've got a husband now. I've got a sister wife. And now I've got the high priest. Can't recognize the sin of his own sons, but you can think I'm a drunk. But she said, do you not get it? I'm brokenhearted. I got nothing. But in that confession, she said, but God, you're enough. And God granted her a son, and she didn't take it and turn in glory out of it. She took it and gave him back to the Lord. So today, this is my, my, my question and my request. Is he enough? And in your life, I'm going to ask the question, would you have a prayer like Hannah sometime this week? Maybe it's today. Maybe it's in the next week. But would you ask God, is he enough? Ask him. 
Are you enough? Have I been living like you're enough? And when he answers you, be like Hannah and allow him to do his mighty work and grace in your life. I'm going to ask um, if you go ahead and come on up. We're going to go ahead and pray. But if you would, let's go ahead and stand. Folks, I'm sorry I get up here. I, t- I swore to myself I'd not be the guy that gets up here and cries. And whimper, I'm a tough guy, you know. But we're living in a day and age where the sons of God and the daughters of God need to be revealed in this world. And we can't do it until we get to the place to recognize he's enough. So let's pray. Father, bow before you. I pray, God, that you will have your way and your will. Lord, decisions need to be made today. <laughs> Are you enough? And what a challenge it's been for me the last couple of weeks just reading this because I realize how short I am and how often I fail. And I would probably represent others in this prayer. I would ask this, that God, that your Holy Spirit would have his way right now, that you would move in our lives and you would let us see that you are more than capable, more than enough. We ask this in Christ's name. You've been listening to a broadcast from LifePoint Church in Greenville, South Carolina. If this ministry has touched your life in some way, we would love to hear from you. Just visit our website at www.lifepointsc.org for more information. Or, if you prefer to reach us by letter, you can write to us at P.O. Box 27036, Greenville, South Carolina. 29616 USA. Until next time, may God bless you as you continue to follow Him. Open the eyes of my heart, Lord. Open the eyes of my heart. I want to see you. I want to see you. Eyes of my heart